Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I do hope that you're reading along in 2 Corinthians as we go through this. Reading the chapter ahead will really, really help you uh, get just a whole lot more about out of it. Before we get into this morning's uh, portion of Scripture, however, I would like to make a comment about last Sunday. Um, I think I took a fairly simple passage of Scripture and made it really complicated. Right? It was not clear at all. It actually is pretty straightforward. Um, the Corinthians, as we know from the first letter, had had a whole lot of problems. Um, they dealt with them pretty well. There was one, and we don't know what it was because Paul doesn't go into detail, but there was one person that was just not, not getting it right. And Paul had written them another letter, the one that's in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. He refers to a letter with tears where he evidently really tore into them pretty good and they took his words to heart and they responded to the situation. And as we so often do, they got a little carried away and they went too far. And so Paul, in these, in the, in what he was doing is he was trying to bring them back to a place of, um, you know, kind of get in the middle. And, and two, the Corinthian church just hadn't quite made the connection that ultimately the, look at the, the attitude of the church has to be outward. You know, they were confused about what Paul has done, had done. They were confused about the situation. And restoration and an outward ministry is what the church is really all about. So having, I hope, straightened that out. Um, if I didn't, that was the last time I'm going to try. So you just read through the passage and pray a lot if you're still confused. Okay, so this morning we do turn to the second chapter, and we're going to start at verse 14. Um, I'm going to make just a couple comments about the first part before we go on, but we're going to start at verse 14. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And I want you all to notice I said 2 Corinthians this time. I think I'm over the hump on that. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul writes, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in His triumph, in Christ, and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate to these things? For we're not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Father, as we pray, as we look to your word, Lord. Guide our thoughts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, those first 13 verses that we're not going to talk about, because I hope you're reading along and you have read them, you'll know that, again, he's talking about a matter the Corinthians had been dealing with. They'd gotten a little bit too far, and he's trying to bring them back and remind them that the church is about reconciliation. I'm not going to talk about it here, because in the fifth chapter, Paul's going to talk more about reconciliation. It's in that fifth chapter we have that marvelous verse, that marvelous verse where Paul talks about the fact that God was in work, at work in Christ reconciling us to him, and then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. What an incredible thing that is. So we're going to talk about that in, the, in that fifth chapter when we get to it. But for now, I want to start with verse 14, and it's a great example. Verse 14 and the verses that follow are a really just a fantastic example of why it's really important to put the effort in to try to get into the cultural setting of the first century. Because you can read this, and you can read about the fact that you know God always leads us in this triumph, and that's great, that's encouraging, it's marvelous knowing God is always leading us in triumph, that's very encouraging. But if you don't get into the detail of the first century, you miss something that's really critical. 
So we want to take the time to do that uh, this morning. Because Paul is talking about something extremely specific here. He has a very definite visual in mind. And it's a visual the Corinthians would have had, and he wants to connect to them, to that visual, to make his point. And it's, it's really powerful. He's talking about not just the idea of triumph, but a Roman triumph. If you know, if you know your Roman history at all, you know that, and not, of course, many of us have any reason to, but if you know your Roman history, the Roman triumph was a huge deal. And everybody, especially in Corinth, would have known about it. It was a huge deal. Um, uh, the Greek word is triambevo, and it means to go forward in triumph and to lead in triumph. It went all the way back to the very earliest days of the Roman Empire before they even had you know, emperors or Caesars when the Senate still ran things. So it goes back hundreds of years. It would continue throughout the imperial period. Uh, it was a big deal. It was a parade, but don't think of a parade like the Rose Parade or Macy's Parade. This is way, way bigger than that. This is bigger than any parade any of us have ever seen, ever seen or imagined. Um, it was designed to honor a Roman general after a really big victory, huge victory. Uh, just to get, kind of put it in perspective, um, one of the best known of these triumphs was the one that honored Titus when he was still a general when he came back from putting down the Jewish revolt. Well, that was a four-year project for him that involved tens of thousands of troops. So it was huge. This had to be something really major. You know, your garden variety military victory, they had a different parade for that that was much smaller. But the triumph was huge, really big deal. Um, it was the kind of thing every Roman general wanted and actively campaigned for. This is not like, you know, a military decoration where we said, hey, you know, you see, you did something great, here's your decoration, and you go, gee, you shouldn't have. No, this was not that at all. These generals they actually had to actively campaigned to get one. It was that, that big of a deal because it was a major step forward for them, right? So um, what happened was, and again, Paul is, we're talking about these details because Paul is pointing to this and he's making, he's, he's, he has a point that comes out of the details uh, of this event. Uh, there, of course, first had to be a really big victory or major campaign that really changed things. Um, uh, he would then send a report of what was going on to the Senate, or if it was after they had, you know, emperor, he sent to the emperor. And there would be details about the battle, where it was fought, who fought in it, who the casualties were, any extraordinary things any of his soldiers had done. And then really important, he would include a lot of details about the treasure, you know, the booty, what they, what they were gonna bring back. That was a really big issue. In real close detail, almost like you know, an accounting of it, of what they were going to bring back, there would be details about the captives, how many people they took prisoner, were there any significant prisoners, was there any members of like a royal family that they grabbed, all of that stuff. And then details about any, how Rome profited. He had to show some detail about how Rome as a city, empire, profited, and then any individuals. For example, let's say there were Roman officials that the enemy had captured or was holding hostage, and he freed them. Oh, that would have to be in the report, because that was a really big... So this long report would go in to the Senate or Emperor, as the case may be, and then the Senate or the Emperor would consider it. They'd have an official meeting of the Senate, and they would get up and they'd argue back and forth whether or not one of these major events was justified. And some would say yes, and some would say no, and they'd go back and forth. If they decided that it was likely, no definite decision, but if it was decided that it was likely, 
then they would send an invitation to the general. He could then approach the city with his army. Because again, if you happen to know your Roman history, you know that a Roman general could not approach Rome with his army. It was right, right in Roman law from the very beginning that um, if you ever wonder where the expression cross the Rubicon comes from, the Rubicon River is 200 miles north of Rome. A Roman general could not bring his army over that river. If he did, it was considered an act of war against Rome. That's how they protected the city from one of their generals, you know, going off on his own and attacking the city and taking over. Um, that is, by the way, what, Caesar, what Julius Caesar did when he took over, right? He crossed the Rubicon, hence the expression. But a Roman general had to stop 200 miles north, or I don't know where the southern boundary was, but before they got to the city, and they would send the report, and then, then they would wait. Well, then if the Senate said, yeah, we think a triumph is appropriate, they would send an invitation, and he could bring his army to the city and stop outside. He had to stop outside, couldn't enter the city. Then the Roman Senate would go out and meet with him. And they'd have a big formal meeting, and they would have, you know, they discuss it back and forth, same stuff they said in the Senate before, but now the general's present. And he can tell his side of the story. Again, he's trying to sell himself, right? He can bring some of his soldiers that did great things. If he liberated or freed some Roman dignitaries, they could speak, and they'd go back and forth. And if it was decided that, you know what, you're right, a, a triumph is justified, then they would announce it, we're going to have a triumph, and then they'd begin to make all the preparations. And then the army would gather, they would leave their weapons outside of the city, they couldn't bring them in, and they would gather uh, at a place called the Field of Mars, Temple of Mars outside the city, and they would form everything up, and they would enter the city right at dawn. And they had to enter right at dawn, because this thing was going to take all day at least. This was an all-day affair usually carried on for several days, right? Well, the first thing they would do is they marched in the city, they'd stop for breakfast, right? They'd have, at the first temple they came to, they would stop for breakfast, and then they would have speeches all morning long, right? Again, the senators would get up and speak, and the dignitaries would get up and speak, and then lastly, the general would speak, and then the parade would actually start, right? The first thing in the parade would be hundreds, if not thousands, of prisoners from whoever they defeated. And they would be in chains, and they would be walking, you know, at the front of the parade, and they would be in the parade. And then would come um, animals. If there were any strange and bizarre animals the people of Rome hadn't seen before, they would have them. Then there would be hundreds of carts filled with all the treasure, all the stuff they brought back. Again, one of the real famous examples uh, in Rome, they have this big, you know, marble relief carving of Titus returning from the siege of Jerusalem, and you can see the artifacts from the temple because they destroyed the temple. So all that stuff is coming back to Rome. Sometimes there would be so much of this stuff, it would actually change the Roman economy. There's one particular case, uh, I, I don't remember which one of, the, one of the triumphs it was or which general, it actually caused uh, a significant rise in inflation. And, and real estate prices went through the roof because they brought, things haven't changed, right? And they brought so much stuff back that when it was infused into the Roman economy, they blew the economy up, right? So they would bring all this stuff. By the mate, the real reason they had to know how much stuff he had is he had to pay for this thing. Yeah, the general was supposed to pay for this big parade and everything that followed out of all those goodies that he brought back. So there would be carts and there would be armaments and all of that stuff. And then um, after that, there would actually be uh, the Senate. The Senate would come walking after, after all the carts and all the goodies. And then finally there would be the general himself. He's the only one that got to ride. He would be in a chariot and he would have his family with him. And then after that would be the soldiers. 
the general's soldiers would come marching after that, white robes, no weapons, and they would make their way through the city, up and down through the cities. The whole way, music is playing and incense. Incense burning everywhere, right? Incense served a threefold, threefold purpose. One was to give thanks to the gods. All of this is, of course, in the name of thanking the Roman gods because they had to make, keep them happy. You know, you want, if you're going off to war a lot, you want your gods to be happy. And they had this incense going up. It was also to honor the general and his army uh, to the point that sometimes the distinction between the generals and the gods kind of got blurred a little bit. And this incense is rising up, especially around the general himself. There would just be this thick cloud of incense going up. And then, of course, the other reason was to hide the stink. Rome was a stinky city. They had open sewers, especially as they got near to the arena because there was so much death that happened in the arena that different authors have talked about the stench of the city due to that. And all this, if you're going to be out in, the, out in the street celebrating, you want something to cover all that up. So they had all this, this, this incense going up to do that. Um, they would move through the city. They would stop at various temples and make all kinds of sacrifices and offerings. Then they would get to the arena, and at the arena... They would divide the prisoners. Some went into the arena to be executed, hundreds, if not thousands, and then some would go either off to the slave market or to become servants of you know, Roman dignitaries, so on and so forth. And then finally they would come to the temple of Jupiter. There would be more sacrifices, and then the crowds would be dispersed, but not to go home. There would be days worth of parties and athletic events and all kinds of stuff all to celebrate. You can get an idea how overwhelmingly huge this triumph, this triumph was. Again, all the way, there's music and there's incense and all of this stuff. Now, what's the point in all of this? Of course, for the Roman perspective, it was to um, honor the god, make the deities happy, honor the general, honor his troops, and um, get just huge stuff. But the question for us is, what's Paul doing with this? Why is Paul pulling up this very clear picture of a Roman event. What's, what's he saying? Well, again, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. There's at least two points of real clear contact and then one small distinction I would make um, in the comparison between the visual of the Roman triumph and the reality of the Christian life that Paul is talking about. First, first question. If we're in this procession, huge question, where are we? Right? Because nothing in here suggests that, that anybody, as, as far as a Christian, when Paul's comparing the Christian life to this procession, there's no spectator. Nothing in this suggests that any Christian is, is, is one of the spectators. We are in the procession. Each and every Christian has a place in that procession, right? So where in the procession are we? There's, there's two bodies of, or two schools of thought, and you can find all kinds of people that, you know, argue both, and I'll just share both quickly. Um, one of the suggestions is that we're the army. You know, we're being led as the emperor led his triumphant army. After all, uh, the general doesn't win without his army, and Christ's kingdom you know, we have our part to play, right? We have to do the job He gives us to do in advancing His kingdom. And there are verses of Scripture that talk about that. You know, Romans, uh, we are more than conquerors in Christ. You can point at verses like that. But I think the strong, and it's a reasonable, reasonable argument, but I think the strongest argument is the second one, which says, we're the captives. 
Christians are the captive train that leads at the front, right? We're the captives, right? Um, because although there are some verses that would describe us like, you know, the victorious army, there's a whole lot more verses in Scripture that describe us like the captives. Paul refers to himself repeatedly as Christ's servant, Christ's slave. Now, we have a problem in our culture because we attach so much meaning to the word slave that is a byproduct of our culture that we lose track of the fact the word really meant something different in Rome. Now, there could be, you know, it could manifest itself as the evil of slavery did in America. That's, that's possible. But at the same time, what we kind of just have to deal with is the fact that the same word is used in Greek to describe the culture of the first century to describe everything from an ordinary household servant down to the worst slave. So we have to just come to terms with the fact it's the same word, right? Servant, slave, same word, right? If, we, if we're going to make a distinction, we have to do it based on what's said in the text, right? So Paul refers to himself a multitude of times as, as a servant. In some translations, as a slave, right? Um, Jesus said, no, man, no, no servant, rather, can serve two masters. He was talking about us. So Jesus was comfortable, in fact, repeatedly. Many of his parables, he talked about his followers as servants or slaves. Jesus felt, evidently felt comfortable making that, making that statement. Peter and James both refer to themselves as servants or slaves. Paul referred to Timothy. He referred to, to Titus and Epaphras in the Colossian letter, as servants, right? The normative biblical description of Christians among the words the Bible would use to describe us, servants. Um, just some examples. Colossians chapter 3, 23-24. And that was one of the most squared away churches of the New Testament, Colossae. Whatever you do, Paul writes, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for man, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive your reward, the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. There it is. Um, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul's talking about the reputation of the Thessalonian church among other churches. For they themselves report about to us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned from God, or you turned to God from idols to serve a living, true God. Serve, right? And then, think about this, in the book of Revelation, how does it describe us? The book of Revelation, right? Revelation 22, the final chapter, begins this way. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him as much as any other depiction of eternity as much as any other depiction of heaven we are described as his servants they will see his face his name will be on their foreheads that's eternity that's us right and the one point i would note at which paul's description of the triumph differs from the actual triumph is this and Paul's careful to do it. He said, he is always leading us in his triumph. Roman general got one day. 
And after that day, he took off the garments he wore in the triumph and never wore them again. It was a violation of Roman law to wear them again. Because he only got to be the big shot one day. In fact, if you have seen the film Patton, at the very end, that thing that he reads, that is a description written by a British historian of a Roman triumph. It's a specific allusion. And the last part of that, and it's confirmed in Roman history, is as the gen if you've seen the film, you know how it ends. As, 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 the, as the conquering general is riding through the city, there was a slave appointed to do one job, to sit next to him and remind him, you are mortal. This is one day only. But for us, the text says, he always leads us in his triumph in Christ. It goes on. We are always in the status that we receive in this triumph, right? In describing our place in the triumph, Paul is making it clear to the Corinthians and to us that the idea that one can be in a relationship with God through Christ without being a servant of God through Christ is just plain foreign to Scripture. That we can walk in fellowship with God without stepping into the role of being a servant of God. It's just not there. It's just not there, right? The 19th century uh, Irish clergyman, uh, Andrew Robert Fawcett, wrote this. Paul regarded himself as a signal trophy of God's victorious power in Christ. His almighty conqueror was leading him about throughout all the cities of the Greek and Roman world as an illustrious example of his power to at once subdue and save. I'd like to read that line just once more. An illustrious example of his power to at once subdue and save. Speaking of himself, the foe of Christ was now the servant of Christ. As to be led in triumph by a man is the most miserable. To be led in triumph by God is the most glorious. The most glorious lot that can befall any. any. Uh, Fawcett went on to say, our only true triumphs are God's triumphs. His defeat of us are our only true victories. When Christ defeated me, the carnal selfish man that I was, and took me captive, that's my freedom. Therein is my freedom found. C.S. Lewis, and if you know any of the story of his life, he was raised with the faith. He went completely away from it, but then he came back. And in describing that process by which he came back to God, C.S. Lewis said that he felt, quote, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so desperately desired not to meet. Lewis was running from God, and God pursued him and conquered him. As with Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32, when Jesus gets the better of me, I get the better of life. Which brings us to the second point of contact. The first point of contact, Paul says, there's all these slaves, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's where you are. That's where you're, that's your part in the parade. You are those conquered. And that brings us to the second point of contact. The first was our place in the procession, those of the conquered. The second is the issue of the incense. 
issue of the incense, right? The description of the triumph by the various historians always includes this incense. However long the triumph might be, however long the parade was, the entire procession is bathed in incense, right? The purpose of the incense, again, was to honor the gods, honor the general, and cover the stink, right? Paul here writes that God, through our presence in the triumph, manifests himself as a sweet aroma. Right there in the verse. He manifests himself as a sweet aroma of the knowledge of him, and that's through us. You see, everything about our presence in the triumph points to God's victory in Christ. Our place among the defeated points to God's victory through Christ, to his absolute rule, his absolute reign. Verse 15 and 16, For we are fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To another, aroma from life to life. See, the question that remains, once we acknowledge that we're among the, those in chains walking in the front, which group are we in? Because that, that's, that, that group's not all going the same place. Some of that group's going to the arena to its death. Some of that group's going to a life of service. That's, that's the choice people make, right? Christ's triumph over you and I, the means by which your life and mine become dedicated to His will, if we bend the knee, if we acknowledge His victory over us, it is a signal to all who come in contact with us. You see, when somebody meets me, right, you know, we, we talk about, as well we should, our lives as a testimony of His goodness and His grace, and that's 100% true. Our lives must be a living testimony to His goodness and His grace. But our lives must also be a testimony to His sovereignty, His divine authority, and His victory, even over me. His life, or my, rather my life, must be, because Paul was certainly comfortable with that, Paul talked in those terms, right? This is not just a doctrine or a religious theory, but it's, a, it's my life expressing His will directing me. My conduct demonstrating His sovereignty. And when that happens, there is a message for those who recognize that message and respond. There's life for those who reject that message. The arena awaits. There is death. For those that accept the message, accept what is demonstrated in our lives as we manifest, yes, His love, mercy, grace, and goodness, His forgiveness of our sins, also His sovereignty over our lives. There's a message for those that will accept it, it's life. For those who reject it, it's death, right? Now, obviously, none of us like the idea of being a servant or a slave, right? Zero appeal, at least to me. I'd rather, you know, be able to do my own thing, right? I would rather be, as the poem goes, captain of my soul, you know, master. I'd rather, that sounds much more appealing were it not for the fact that I tried that. And I know where it leads. And it most certainly leads to death. And, the, of course, the problem is that as a Christian, I'd like to be able to keep doing that. But I can't because the option's not there. I only have one choice. I'm a, I'm a slave in the train. I only have one choice, and that is death in the arena or a life of service. Those are my choices. Death in the arena 
or a life of service. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know if I can handle this. I know I don't like it. I don't know if I can handle it. In fact, I'm not even sure I could do it if I wanted to. I'm not sure I could bring myself to a life of freely embracing servanthood, right? I don't know I like that. I don't think I can. And he says in verse 16, well, who is adequate to these things? If you are sitting here and you're going, I don't know if I can believe this. I don't know if, I know I don't like it. And even if I believe it and I like it, I'm not sure I can do it. Join the club. Apostle Paul was the founding member. He said, who is adequate? He's including himself in that. Paul didn't like it anymore, but Paul saw the beauty in it. And he saw that a life of service was just as that incense rose up as a sweet-smelling fragrance. And imagine, too, imagine, too, the fact that the incense was offered not only to honor the general, not only to, to honor the God, but to cover the stench of the city. That's real. And as our lives are offered in surrender to him so that each and every day I manifest not only his mercy and his grace and his love for me, but also my acknowledgement that I am his servant. He has complete control over my life. As I endeavor to do that, it not only honors him, it goes a long way towards covering up the stench of the world that we live in. Who is adequate to these things? How many like the word adequate? You know, you, you, you give it a job to do, you throw yourself into it, you do your absolute best, and then a guy walks up and goes, well, that's adequate. I don't know about you, I'd rather fail. You know? I'd rather have you tell me you blew it, go back and do it again, right? Because I want to hear, well done, right? I want to hear, great, great A job, but adequate, right? But you know what? If I'm given a task, that is completely beyond my ability, and the only way I can, can, can succeed in it is with God's help, then I'm grateful for any measure of success. Adequacy is pretty good. I'll take adequate. If I'm given a job, and the only possible end, if I'm working on my own, is failure, and the only success will come by God showing up, then at the end of the job, if I get told adequate, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because failure in that sense is not acceptable. Right? Paul says, who is adequate to these things? Well, the answer is none of us in ourselves. But given his presence in our life, I'll take it. So as unattractive as it may sound at first, as, as, as even I would say repugnant to our, our, our culture and our understanding of what servanthood and even slavery is, when we consider that our yielding ourselves to him as his servants, whatever else might be, say, might be said about the time I spend on this planet and this life that I have, the short span that I have, if whatever else may be said about it was that I serve God in my lifetime, I'll take it. I'll take it. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And this passage of Scripture, Father, and I, I can only speak for myself, I find it, Lord, very confrontational to my sensibilities. I don't like it. Um, I like the idea of, of Jesus you know, dying on the cross for my sins and forgiving me and washing me clean and filling me with his spirit. I love that stuff, Lord. 
But when I realized, Lord, that the other side of that, the other part of that equation is that my life has to be surrendered completely and wholly in service, that I am no longer my own, I am bought with a price, Paul says in Romans, Lord, I find a lot of me um, withdraws from that. That I have to acknowledge this morning, Lord, that I really don't have any choice in the matter. I am seen, as Paul describes, as those prisoners, Lord, half of whom go to the arena and the result is death, Lord. That's the only other alternative. I, I find servitude very attractive then, Lord. And all the more, Lord, when I realize the beauty and the glory of serving my King and my God. When I get past, Father, my, my carnal fleshly objections to that idea, and I realize that serving my King and my God is the most magnificent thing I could ever do, Lord, it is that for which I am created and made, Lord, then it becomes a joyous thing. Father, I pray that as, as we go through our week, as we contemplate these things, Lord, and mostly, Father, as we, as we spend our day our thoughts would come back again and again to this simple reality, Lord. We are called servants. Even as we're called saints, we're called servants. Help us walk with that mindset, a mindset of obedience and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord this morning.